Father God, on this holiest of holy days. As we gather to remember what your son did and what he does. And the fact that he died, that we could live, and he rose, that we will rise. And he paid for all of our sin and purchased our salvation. And is praying for us now and rose from our grave that we are victorious. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we honor you and we worship you on this Easter day. And we're amazed at your grace. Thank you for your grace. Speak to us your grace today. Help us to understand your grace. Help us to experience your grace where we need your grace most. Wherever in our hearts, wherever in our lives, wherever in our marriages, wherever in our homes, wherever we need your grace most on this Easter Sunday. May that grace rise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming to the 8 o'clock service. To the degree that history is significant to you, you made history today. We've never done this before. We don't want the fire marshal to close us down on Easter, and usually every year at Easter it's more packed than we have room for. So this year we have the new space, which is terrific, so grateful for that. And then we thought even with that, that's not big enough really if the crowd is what it was the last couple of years. So we thought we'd do an early service, and hopefully someone would come. And you did. Thank you so much, so much for doing this. I'm so grateful to David and Mike and Claire and everybody that made it possible for us to do this and have the service together today. Every year at Easter, one of the most powerful things for me is the fact that 2.2 billion Christians around the world are gathering on this day, and the pastor stands up in every language, and he says to the people, he is risen, and the people say, he is risen indeed. Let's do that. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that is the fact we claim by the grace of God today. So you've been watching the news, you've been following tragedy that has made headlines around the world, the burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral, two-thirds of it going up in flames, more than a billion dollars, $1.1 billion already been received in just a few days to rebuild the cathedral over hopefully the next five years. I've never been to Notre Dame, but I've been to others like it. It's been my privilege to be in Westminster in uh, Great Britain, the Westminster Chapel Cathedral, and be able to worship there to be in the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican, to be able to be in Hagia Sophia at Istanbul or the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, Church of Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Each time you're in one of these structures, you're just amazed by the beauty of it, by the verticalness of it, by the degree to which it calls us to God and its self-glory and His presence and His grace. But there's a fact inside all that. If all of those burn down, If every church building on the planet, if this chapel burned down, the church would remain because the church isn't a building. The church didn't start in a building. In fact, churches weren't allowed to own buildings for three centuries. It's when Constantine legalized the church that the church could build buildings. The oldest church on the planet, Church of the Nativity, was started in 327 A.D. For three centuries, churches couldn't own. You weren't legally allowed to own buildings. The church isn't a building, it's a movement. It's not an institution. It's an army marching on its knees to take the gospel around the world. The church didn't start in a building, even one like this. It started at a tomb, an empty tomb. Today we're going to talk about that empty tomb. Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? We know why he had to die on the cross to pay for our sin. We understand that. 
But why did he have to be raised? What was it about the tomb that changed everything that still changes everything? Why does the tomb matter? Why does the empty tomb matter? Why did he have to be raised from the dead? As we talk about that, I'd like you to think about the area in your life where you most need the risen Christ today. Where is it that you need his encouragement or you need his wisdom, his direction, his leadership, his forgiveness, his peace? Where do you need Jesus to be real in your life? Where do you need him to be risen in your life? Not a rhetorical question. Where do you need Easter? Let's think about that. And let's find out why he rose. Because when we understand why he rose, we understand why this is the greatest day of the year. And why every day is Easter. So here's the story. Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28 verse 1. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, Mary, the mother of one of the followers of Jesus, went to see the tomb. They had seen Jesus buried on that Friday, but the Sabbath was coming, and they weren't able to work over the Sabbath. And so now it's early Sunday morning. The Sabbath is done on Saturday night. Shabbat, as they say in Israel, is done on Saturday night. So it's early Sunday morning, and Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, are going to finish burying the corpse, as you look at the other Gospels. Behold, there was a great earthquake. The Greek says there was a mega earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. That's a very significant act. The Gospels say that the Romans had sealed the stone. That doesn't mean hermetically sealed. They had put a wax seal on it with the stamp of Rome, and if you broke the seal, you could be punished with death. Well, the angel doesn't care. The angel could care less about Roman authority, right, and Roman power and Roman military. They had had battle-hard Roman guards standing guard over the tomb so that no one could steal the body and claim that Jesus was alive. These are people who would die if they were derelict in their duty, and the angel's not a bit surprised, not a bit scared. He shows up, he rolls back the tomb, and I love this, he sat on it. I like that detail. I just like picturing the the angel sitting on all the power and the authority of Rome. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards trembled, became like dead men. They were guarding a dead man, and now they become like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. In the Greek, it's stop being afraid. I know you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. It's already happened. Already taken place. As he said, come see the place where he lay. People think that the angel rolled aside the stone so Jesus couldn't get out, but that's not true. He was already gone. They didn't roll aside the stone so Jesus could get out, but so that we could get in. So that we could see that Easter had happened, that he was risen from the grave. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. He's risen, but he's still among us. He's risen, but you can see him. He's risen, and you're going to see proof that he's alive. So there's revelation, and the revelation leads to obedience. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. When you receive a word from God, you're supposed to obey the word of God. And then when you do, you meet God. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet. He was risen again in a physical form so that they could hold his feet. Later in John's gospel, he makes breakfast for the disciples. He came back in flesh. He came back in a physical body. They took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So God speaks to us, and we obey his word, and we meet God, and we worship God, and then we get to tell others about God. 
And that's how the cycle works. But here's my question today. Why did he have to do that? Why did all that have to happen? A lot of people think Jesus had to rise from the dead because if he hadn't, he wouldn't be alive, but that's not true. On the cross, he said to the thief, truly I say to you, today, the Greek says in just a second, you'll be with me in paradise. And then he prayed to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The moment of Jesus' death on the cross, he was with his father in heaven. He didn't have to come back to a physical body to be alive. He was already alive. He was alive in heaven. He was alive with his father. He was alive in paradise. Why did he then have to come back to a physical body? Why did he have to do that? What happened at the empty tomb? What happened at Easter? Well, here's some things that happened. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that he's God. If you were Muslims, you could go to Medina and you could see the tomb of Muhammad. You're not allowed to do it unless you're a Muslim, but if you're a Muslim, you can go to Medina and you can see where the corpse of Muhammad is buried. You can see the grave of Confucius, if you wish. The body's still there. You can go to a mausoleum in Moscow and see the remains of Lenin. The remains of the Buddha are at various temples all over the world. But when you go to the tomb of Jesus, that's what it looks like. It's empty. His resurrection proves he's God. He said he was God. He did miracles. But the proof is the empty tomb. If you have doubts like I do, if there are times you have questions, if there are times if you wonder, is God really God? Is he really there? Is it really true? Does it all really hang together? I invite you to go to the empty tomb. There's no explanation for the empty tomb. The disciples didn't overpower the guards, push aside the stone, pull the corpse out, make it look alive, make it appear through locked doors, make it fix breakfast at the side of the Sea of Galilee, make it appear to 500 people as though he was alive, then throw it up into the sky at the ascension, and then die for a lie. That didn't happen. The women didn't do that either. The Romans didn't steal the body, or they would have shown the body when the disciples started proclaiming the resurrection. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. Joseph knew the right tomb. The women knew the right tomb. The Romans knew the right tomb. It's not a hallucination. 500 people don't have the same hallucination. 1 Corinthians 15 said 500 people saw the risen Christ. It's not a swoon. Jesus really died. There was a spear that pierced to the pericardial sac of his heart, and that's why water and blood came out. He didn't survive that and then survive three days in an airtight mummified shroud and then disappear from inside the shroud so that the shroud collapsed on, collapsed on top of itself as John's gospel appears and then appear to be divine and go through locked doors and do the greatest high jump in history. There's no explanation for the empty tomb. The times when I've wondered, is it worth my life? Is it really true? That shows you it's true. He's God. Second fact about Easter. His word is true. If Jesus is risen, if he's Lord, then his word is true as well. He promised. He began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Easter proves that he was right. When you wonder if the Bible's true, go to the empty tomb. When you wonder if the Bible really is the word of God, if it really is the authoritative, trustworthy word of God, remember Easter and go to the empty tomb. One last fact. 
because of Easter. Jesus is God and the word is true and we win. Those that you love who died in Christ didn't die. Jesus said to Martha after her brother died, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. When you breathe your last breath here, you take your first breath there. When you close your eyes here, you open them there. There's never a moment that you cease to be because of Easter. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. He was resuscitated. He wasn't resurrected. Jesus was resurrected. You will be resurrected. Because of Easter, when you die, it's Easter. When you die, you don't die. A poet said, think of stepping on ground and finding it celestial, of breathing air and finding it heavenly, of hearing music and finding it angelic, of feeling a touch and finding it God. And all of that is because of Easter. Because he won, we win. At the cross, Satan thought he won. Gospel of John says that Satan inspired Judas to betray Jesus. At the cross, as Jesus is dying, Satan is convinced that he is one, and he's defeated and killed the Son of God, and he has quashed the movement that Jesus came to begin. Satan was convinced he won, but three days later, Jesus won. The next time Satan attacks you, the next time you're tempted, the next time the enemy comes against you, recognize and remember that because Jesus won, you win. On the cross, the Jewish authorities thought they had won who had arranged for him to be crucified so they could do away with this would-be Messiah and in this movement that was threatening their power and their authority, they thought they thought they had won. But on Easter, Jesus won. The next time you're attacked by somebody, the next time somebody gossips about you or accuses you or slanders you or hurts you in some way, go to the empty tomb and remember that Jesus won and you win. At the cross, the Romans thought they won. Here's the greatest empire the world had ever seen. The only empire that's ever controlled every inch of the shoreline of the entire Mediterranean Sea. We call it the Mediterranean. They called it Mare Nostrum, which means our sea. They were the greatest military the world had ever seen. Certainly they could do away with an itinerant carpenter from Nazareth. But on the third day, Jesus won. The next time the world is too much, the next time the empires of the world are against you, and you feel like you're on the cross, you're not, because he won. We win. Spent the summer in 1979 in East Malaysia. That's that kind of brownish-looking thing over on the island of Borneo over there to the right. And it was there one Sunday morning that I saw a teenage girl being baptized. As she was being baptized, I noticed a, a set of threadbare luggage up against the wall. I asked my interpreter whose luggage it was. He pointed to the teenager being baptized. And he explained that her father told her if she was ever baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again, so she brought her luggage. I also spent a week in Singapore on my way over to East Malaysia, and it was there I met a young boy. After I met him, the missionaries told me a story. They'd won him to Christ months earlier, began coming to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They began noticing bruises and welts and wounds on his body, and they asked him why. And he said that his father beat him for going to church. They asked him why he stayed at home. He said, if I leave home, my father won't hear about Jesus. Carlos Alamino was a pastor in Cuba. I've been working with him for more than 20 years. He had a chance to be the starting third baseman on the Cuban national baseball team, which is rock star celebrity in Cuba. And he gave that up 
to pastor a tiny Baptist church in the center of the island with maybe 200 on Sunday that last year, through its 39 or 40 ministries, shared the gospel with more than 100,000 people. More than a million Cubans have come to Christ in the last 10 years through people like Carlos Alamino. This is Abraham Sarker, a dear friend of Janice and mine. He came to the United States from Bangladesh years ago as a Muslim to convince Americans to become Muslims. He had a dramatic visionary conversion experience. His father disowned and placed a warrant for his arrest if he ever returned home. He went home, risking his life, won his family to Christ, started a ministry that last year led more than 10,000 Muslims to Christ. And it's all because of that. All because of that. A poet said it this way. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never owned a home. Never traveled more than 100 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. While he was still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies. He was put through the mockery of a trial. He was condemned and crucified between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he owned, his cloak. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And today he is the central leader of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together on this earth have not influenced the life of man on this earth as has that one solitary life. Let's pray. Why do you need Easter today? Where is it in your life that you need the risen Christ? Is there temptation you're fighting, a temptation that's defeated you? Are there people in your life that are difficult? Is the world against you? Is there a place where you need the risen Christ? Name it right now. Bring it to Jesus right now. No better day of the year to trust the risen Christ than this day. Bring it to Jesus right now. Lord Jesus, risen Christ, who died for us and rose for us, we worship you on this holy day, on this Easter day. And we pray that every day now will be Easter. That every day we'll trust you as we do today. That every day we will worship you as we do today. Because every day you're just as alive as you are this day. And tomorrow is Easter. And every day is Easter. Because you are risen indeed. We praise you. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name.